Hello, my name is Omar Abosh, and I'm the Corporate Vice President of Industry Solutions at Microsoft. And I am Will I Am, entrepreneur, philanthropist, musician, and producer, and my mother's son, and this is Changemakers. There are a lot of people around the world driving change that impact society. In this series, we'll share stories of transformation directly from the leaders themselves who made the change. We'll talk about their obstacles, their triumphs, their learnings, and how technology has accelerated their mission. If the global pandemic reminded us of anything, it was the vulnerability of children around the world. Millions of children couldn't go to school, and remote learning exposed harsh realities about social and economic inequalities. It will be years before we know how the disruption in education has impacted this generation. For 75 years, the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, also known as UNICEF, has been dedicated to helping at-risk children around the world. It has been called the heart of the United Nations, and its executive director, Henrietta Four, has kept it beating loudly for the last four years, implementing innovative and change-making strategies to provide aid for the next generation. Henrietta Four retired recently from her post as executive director, capping an illustrious career in public services. She knows about the value and art of building bridges to make change for the betterment of humanity. We are so lucky to have her join us here today. Hi, Henrietta. <laughs> Hi, Henrietta. Hi. Hi. Hi, Will. Nice Good to see, see you. you. So I'll kick off the first question. Um, this is such a chaotic and transformative time for the globe. What has the pandemic and the last three years taught you about how we serve children in communities with the highest level of need? Oh, that's a difficult question, but we certainly have learned a lot in the last few years. Um, the pandemic taught us one very big lesson, which was that speed and scale mattered. And I think before that, we thought that we might have all the time needed to properly plan how to develop economies and how to reach children and how to develop their lives and how to help them. But the pandemic just changed the world. It flipped it upside down for us and it made it very difficult for children. As you know, um, Will, we had 1.8 billion children out of school. That The world has never seen that before. So we learned that we needed to move with speed and scale. And as as such, at UNICEF and at the United Nations, we were present in every country, and that made a big difference. We could see what was happening to children and to families all over the world. Talk us through the decision-making and what went through your mind at the front of the pandemic when you were thinking about opening or not opening schools. Um, I think parents around the world have you know, felt very you know, strong emotions around these decisions, uh, and I'd love to understand your thought process. Well, um, first, we had a lot of children out of schools. 1.8 billion children around the world is an enormous number. And um, when we look back on it now, we have millions and millions of children who still have not been back to school. So one of the things that you think about in UNICEF is what kind of advice can you give to parents? And so we quickly opened parenting hubs online so that you could call in as a parent and you could ask whatever questions you had. During the pandemic, most parents felt 
that they were a parent first, they were a teacher second, and third, they were a professional worker in whatever job, whether they were day laborers or whether they were working in an office, but that was third. So we had to get them information. So they came online and the numbers were just extraordinary. Um, and so we built up those parenting hubs just to get that kind of information to parents. Because for many of them, their schools were closed. They didn't have an option. But then later came a hard choice for us. Uh, and it was, should we say that children should go back to school? Should we tell governments that they should open their schools? Were we putting children in harm's way because they would catch the the virus and that they, they might sicken and that we would lose them? And so we... We looked at all of the evidence and decided that on balance, it was better to keep the schools open. I think all of us now realize what a debt we owe to the teachers who were in schools when we were growing up. Well, those same teachers are extremely important to keeping schools open and to reaching them. And most teachers tried to then do distance learning, but many schools didn't have the technology to do it or they didn't have books or they didn't have a way to teach the children when they were at home. So we think now during the pandemic, we have lost about a third of the students, most of them girls. They will not go back because they've gone into making some money for their families. And, you know, these are subsistence families in poor areas, in poor countries. And so opportunities are scarce. So Going back to school, opening up the schools is exceptionally important. We think that education is the best ladder out of poverty, so it helps for their future. You know, we, we launched um, with Microsoft the Learning Passport so that children, no matter where they were, could catch up with their own home curriculum, their mm -hmm. national curriculum, in their own home language. And that's very important for these refugee and migrant children. If they don't get a chance to keep up with school, then how do they get a chance to dream about the future and um, become like you? They want to be Will I Am. I believe that wholeheartedly, that education is the ladder out of poverty, as well as mentorship and encouragement. And so for all the folks that, you know, in corporations and NGOs around the world that go out and mentor after school programs, whether the after school programs are in inner cities or in third world countries, um, you know, the, this type of work is, is highly appreciated and needed. Um, what children and young people tell us is that their number one request is they can learn something in school that they might be able to make into a livelihood later. We think that eight out of 10 are going to have to be entrepreneurs. So those mentorship programs that everyday citizens can do to help young people. Will, when you go out into the field, you know, it makes an enormous difference. It gives them some hope and it gives them some ideas that for what they could do in life, what kind of a livelihood they could have. It's, um, it gives them a future. It gives them a dream. I know I've been on a couple of the missions, especially the one that rings dear to my heart is when there was tsunami relief. And I went to Bandeyache with UNICEF um, to do tsunami relief there um, at Ground Zero. But the question that I have is, right now, what regions do you believe are the most at risk in terms 
of their child population? Yeah, well, um, clearly, um, there are some uh, sweeping changes moving through the world. Um, Droughts. So you look at a place like southern Ethiopia. There is conflict in the north in the Tigray regions, but in the south, it is drought. And when the drought comes, it means that the animals die. It means that the people can't migrate the way they have been uh, used to doing. They're pastoral communities. And you begin to lose all of your ability to feed your families. And the drought is just killing on people. Mm. We now have low water tables in Yemen, in the Jordan River Valley. And so we see that it's very difficult to get clean water to children. They have fragile bodies. When they don't get clean water, it means that they can sicken and die. And so uh, whatever the issue, it could be cholera, it could be any of the other diseases that are moving through, children are the first to die. So um, I would say drought, wherever we have drought, is one of the major issues that we worry about. The second one that is very difficult for children is conflict, because Children are not usually part of the conflict, but they run away from it. Often they get separated from their families, which is what we've seen in case after case. So we saw it in South Sudan. We see it Mm -hmm. in Myanmar. We see it everywhere. So Will, you saw a natural disaster, but there are also those man-made disasters. And both of those are very hard for children and for their families and to try to keep them together. Yeah, I remember going to Calais or with UNICEF, um, the jungle there, right on the border of France and and uh, the UK, and seeing how many kids that were from Sudan and other world-torn countries. It was amazing to see the things that people wanted. Like, the things that people wanted were feminine hygiene, that's the that's the main what I learned from going to refugee camps with UNICEF is that the highest the the the, 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 the thing that people need the most is feminine hygiene and then SIM cards and then then water and the reason why I was like why why the SIM cards well they have to call the people where they where they're going and keep in contact from where they left so the SIM card is super important I didn't I, that blew my mind I thought it was food first. Will, you're seeing something that we're seeing all over the world. When disaster hits, when people have to leave their homes, the thing that they want to take with them is their cell phone because that's the way they can keep in touch with the family and those that they've left beside. They sometimes don't take food or they don't take a hat or sweaters or something else or money. Uh, but some sort of identity um, can often be in your cell phone. So that technology, that connectivity means a great deal to people uh, when they're fleeing human or um, uh, or natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned identity, Henrietta. I would love your thoughts on the importance of identity for refugees and, and children. And how, how do we, how should we think about that? Oh, you you are hitting on an area that's just so important. I mean, it should be that it becomes a basic human right, that you have an identity, that you have a name, that you have a birth certificate, that you have a citizenship, that you belong to a place. But as you know, uh, Omar, there, there are so many places now 
in which a child is born and they cannot get that identity, either because they are stateless, let's say that the Rohingya population that's fled out of Myanmar and are now in Cox's Bazaar, but also elsewhere around the world. Um, but you need to have an identity and you need to have a nationality. If you don't have an identity, it's very hard to get into a school. It's hard to open a bank account. It's, it's hard to get any sort of credit. How do you build a life without having an identity and without having a nationality. There's some very interesting new programs in which um, ICT companies, the telephone companies, have now offered to, to uh, provide a service to UNICEF in many of the primary healthcare centers so that if I'm a mother and I've just had a child, I can remotely take a picture of the child and my healthcare worker can send it in to the national government, so it could be Bangladesh, and I can get a birth certificate for my child. That is groundbreaking. Mm. It can help us give identities for millions of children that are being born in today's world. Henrietta, we were talking about technology for identity. I'd love to um, talk about other ways in which you've seen it for you know used for good in your in your world. I mean, there are so many. Uh, humanitarian crises happening around the world that we sometimes don't even hear about in the Western world. Um, what can we do to, to help people better understand what's happening so that they might find, find it in themselves to participate or help or support in one way or another? How do you marshal the resources that you need to marshal to make things happen, to drive positive outcomes uh, in the areas where UNICEF is focused? Um, so that's a great question. Uh, let me give you an example from Lebanon. Uh, there was a gathering called Girls Got IT or Girls Got It. And what happens at this is that about 2,000 girls who are in secondary school in Lebanon, they come to a, um, a big auditorium and lots of older women, their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, are there to tell them what they do. So I walked into one classroom in which it was an architect. And she was showing them on a computer how she designs a village and how she designs apartments and how it would look and how they could use digital online skills for the future. These 2,000 girls were so excited. I mean, they were just chattering away to each other and laughing and, and they were seeing their future in a way that was very real. But we don't have enough of these programs. We started a big public-private partnership called Generation Unlimited so that we could reimagine education and the connectivity of what you learn in the classroom to some skills that you could then create a life. Well, we're going to need a lot more entrepreneurs who are going to create their own jobs. So if you can unleash the creativity of the young and give them some skills for how to price a product, get a customer, that will help. And it helps for communities in every country, in every economic level, in every education level, because um, they can then uh, do something to help their own lives, which is what they are asking of us. It's the number one request we have. And I think we could also be developing more programs where you connect young people, their skills to jobs so that they can see themselves in the future. And that has to do with getting an identity and getting to know yourself and what skills you carry that you can then put to work 
uh, to earn a living later in life. Incredible. It's great. Yeah, I, and I love that idea of using technology to help uh, mentors of various flavors you know, be out there in the world connecting to younger folks and helping guide them on their way is fantastic. It doesn't take long of searching on Twitter and Facebook to conclude that we're living in a pretty unprecedented partisan era. Um, and I'm wondering, are the, you know, what's at the root of all of that? What role is technology playing? And is that something that you're seeing you know, happening beyond in terms of human beings being divided politically more than ever? So we are seeing human beings being divided. The inequality in the world um, it faces you every day in an organization like UNICEF because it is, it is stark. It is startling and um, it's heartbreaking to see. You just wish you could give opportunity for every single child and every single family in the world. So how do you do that? I mean, I think we have enormous possibilities for technology for good. And Will, you and I have talked about this. I think we could connect every school in the world to the internet in the next three or four years. It's because technology now with lower satellites, with Wi-Fi, it's doable technically. So then we just need to get more digital learning online and in native languages so that children and young people can learn, but also older people can learn. Um, but there, the enormous possibility of a good education so that a society sees their shared history, their shared future, and they become more cohesive if you can do so. But we need to connect that other half of the world. So half of the world is not connected, half is connected. If we don't connect them, then, Omar, we're going to be pulling uh, apart as a world that those who have are going to just go further ahead and fly in the future, and those who do not are going to be left behind. But you can see everywhere in the world that they want the connectivity. So in rural Africa, you need to have a, a cell phone, or you do not know what your products, let's say cassava root, is selling for in the market. You've got to get your produce to market. And so having um, a, a cell phone to know that is extremely important. Having um, the digital applications becoming uh, agri-tech is what the new young entrepreneurs want. Wow. And so we can teach that. It's, it's doable. And it doesn't have to be a rural or urban divide. It doesn't have to be a poor and rich divide. It does not have to be a east, west, north, south. But we could have a very cohesive society, and we could do this. But Will, you may want to add into that. Yeah. So uh, during COVID, the school that I that I started about eleven years ago, I I saw firsthand this digital divide in Los Angeles. Kids couldn't learn from home because they didn't. I didn't. We didn't think that people didn't have the internet. We just especially in the, in, the, in the inner city. In the city, you think the internet is everywhere. But it's not the case. So kids in my community that go to my school um, had to go to Taco Bell and McDonald's to learn because that's the only place they had the internet. And so I just joined a board called WeLink. And to get service to inner cities, we had to go through the housing authority, 
Then we had to go to LA Unified School District to put the antennas up. To make a long story short, we were able to do that. And in the next couple of months, we will have high-speed internet for about five-mile radius from the projects that I come from, Jason, to the school that I started. Um, just to show, just even inner cities and awesome cities like Los Angeles has this digital divide and how it impacts people's learning, how it impacts their dignity, how it impacts their connectivity, how it impacts their outlook on life to go out and solve problems by starting with how do you prepare yourself for tomorrow. And as the world gets more technological, we know the folks that are, that are in, that, in, that, um, in that cross-section that are going to be impacted the most. Those are inner-city kids. Those are kids in rural areas, villages, provinces, slums, favelas. How do you have those careers and those jobs coming from, you know, you know Soweto? How do you have folks in the Congo with these skill sets solving their problems that create jobs that we couldn't even imagine? And the way, only way to do that is upskilling, mentoring, encouraging, educating, and preparing folks to solve their problems. And by solving those problems, it will spawn jobs and, and careers and industries that we can't imagine today. Exactly. And, and the young people are filled with so much creativity. I mean, they are going to create all kinds of businesses and you can see it. Um, it you know, in South Africa, there's this wonderful program where they've created um, a type of money that is that you can use at the store, but it's just local. So if you can do a good deed, like let's say you go over to the senior center and you're sweeping out the center or you're doing their gardening or you're helping in the kitchen, they give you then a little token and you can take it into the shops and you can use it to buy bread, milk, books, everything. A service-based currency. Exactly. That's exactly. Awesome. And 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 so then they said, well, couldn't we make this into a business? And they did. And so now they're hiring others from the neighborhood and they're all on it. So it, it, the creativity is there if we can just give the young people a chance. And they're such a good investment. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely story. <laughs> it's a really lovely story. Henrietta, you've had an astonishing career uh, so far. As you look back on what you've done at this point, what are the moments you're most proud of? And what outlook would you leave us with for, for kids and children around the world? Well, um, what I must say has happened during the pandemic is that for those of us who've been able to do something about it, you know, at UNICEF, half of the vaccines move through the hands of UNICEF, um, half of the vaccines in the world, because we have to do routine immunizations for children for measles and chickenpox. And, and we also do polio vaccines with our great friends in Rotary and in the Gates Foundation and WHO and others. So we knew that we had big areas that we needed to cover, but it meant that you could do something, you could help the world. And I must say that I felt so honored that during a time like the pandemic, when we needed big global organizations who would just go to work and help the world and help everyone in the world, no matter who they were or where they lived or the age they were. But those big organizations could do massive amounts of good. So um, I just felt honored to be part of it. 
And I think everyone should take the model of will um, and they should think about how they can help their home communities. How can they help the communities that they work in? It gives you a reason to bound out of bed every day. It gives you a reason to be hopeful. It gives you a reason that you are part of the community. Thank you so much for all the stuff that you've done, um, your dedication, and providing not only, you know, a light and inspiration and hope, but your service. Thank you so much for your service. You are a true inspiration. I'm honored to know you, to have met you. Can't wait to see you again soon. And thank you so much, Henrietta. Thank you, Henrietta. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Omar. Well, uh, we'll do something together. Yes, can't wait. She's got a great vibe. Wow. Amazing. So positive. Yeah, I went up, I did this huge um, benefit concert in Malaysia for Indonesia. And then ever since then, I started doing as much work as I could with UNICEF and meeting, uh, working with Henrietta. She's like a dynamic, inspirational like force to be around. Like Henrietta has that presence. Like you must know everything. Did, did she say anything that surprised you? No. It's all, let's go to work. Yeah, I mean, what about the thing oh, about the, listening the, to little kids, hey? Like, I thought that was great. No, no, no. That's, that's part of her work. Her, her UNICEF is about, you know, looking out for, you know, families and their children in war-torn countries. And part of that helping families and their children out is listening to the children. What do the children need? And I think there's something about female leaders when they say, listen to the children, you know what they mean. And so when, I, when, when you see a person like Henrietta just vibrate like that and commit and dedicate their lives, their entire lives to helping, and at the end of her career, quote unquote, she says, listen to the children. Uh, only a super, a superwoman, mother, nurturer, leader can come to that, you know, that, that true north of what it's all about. It's to support, mentor, and listen to the children. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in what you just said and where she was pointing. I mean, you're right. As I remember being a new dad and realizing that I knew nothing about the process that my wife at the time had been through. And so you're right. Um, we come from a different lens, from a different place. And being able to listen uh, is an amazing skill. And yeah. So, uh, I can't wait till we start putting some some real some real action behind the slogans of really valuing the power of the female and the and valuing the power of the youth and investing and supporting and protecting them there's no question we can do better hell yeah damn right <laughs> sorry 